Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the third and final installment of my conversation with UCSF neuroscientist Adam Ghazali about his extraordinary work in developing the medical potential of video games. If you haven't yet heard parts one or two, there are links on the page where this audio player is embedded, and I strongly suggest you go back and listen to them before this installment. Finally, a quick note of orientation. I originally thought this podcast series would be a limited set of just eight episodes connected to my latest science fiction novel, which is also called After On, and which came out last summer. But the podcast acquired a life of its own, and I'm about to publish episode number 38 in the series of eight. As you're about to find out, these first eight episodes have a distinctive format in that each of them ends with a conversation between me and Tom Merritt, who you may know from CNET, from Tech TV, then later from Leo Laporte's network, and now from Tom's own videocast, Daily Tech News Show. In those closing conversations, Tom and I discuss the day's interview and also a chunk of the book. The segment you're about to hear will end with one of those conversations, and you may, of course, want to skip it. But you may not, because although Tom and I mention the spoiler potential of our conversation, listening to it now, there actually aren't any real spoilers, which could matter to the 1% of you who might actually want to read my novel. Whereas if you have zero interest in the novel, Tom and I do discuss the themes of the interview with Adam. We also discuss the process of writing and how science informs and influences science fiction. Tom is a prolific science fiction author himself, so if you're interested in storytelling in general, it's something of a backstage look at how those of us who concoct these things go about it. And I'll add that a lack of familiarity with a novel really shouldn't cause you to get lost in the conversation at all, so you might just find it interesting. And with that, back to my conversation with Adam Ghazali. So I just want to close on something. Uh, it will segue into the second part of the podcast in which uh, Tom Merritt and I discuss part of the novel After On. Um, but you, uh, the model of consciousness that's represented in After On um, sprang fairly directly from conversations that you and I had before I started writing it. And I'd like to focus on one thing, uh, which is, which I find fascinating in your theory of consciousness, and I did end up putting into the novel, so you know I find it double fascinating, doubly fascinating, I guess. And in the section of the book that Tom and I are going to discuss at the end of the podcast, a neuroscientist who just happens to be uh, from UCSF, as it as it turns out, but it's a woman, so it's not you, um, tells a character. Uh, with a cataplectic disorder, um, the following things about goals. And so they're sitting in her apartment. She says, I doubt you're even registering 1% of your sensory input. You're heating the part of your field of view that I'm occupying, plus the sound of my voice, but you're blotting out everything else because your goal of conversing is shaping your sensory experience. It's drastically amplifying the tiny subset of signals connected to our words and negating everything else. Goals are basically cognitive actors. You could almost say they make us conscious. Um, I'd like to talk about the significance of goals in your own understanding of consciousness and human cognition, broadly speaking, because I do find it kind of intriguing. There are two ways that we interact with the world around us. One is what we call top-down. It's how you perceive the world and attend to the world driven by your goals. You're paying attention to my voice now because you choose to, not necessarily because it might even be the most salient you know, thing around you, but you're choosing to. You made that decision. And that is uh, you know, a very human act in many ways, is this top-down. We are, you know, 
drenched deeply in top-down experiences, especially in the modern world. The other way we the interact... The top being the kind of imaginary person in the yeah, control tower. Exactly. Who's saying this is important the goal and that generating is not. The goal-generating yeah, entity. Yeah. Uh, of your identity, yeah. right. The other aspect of how we interact with the world is much more ancient uh, and also equally important in many ways, and that's called bottom-up. That's how we attend to the world based on the environment itself, not our goals. So if there's a flash of light, a loud sound, even your name, um, which has now been deeply programmed into your brain, even if your name is said quietly behind you, it will command your attention independent of your goals. Mm. We are constantly navigating the world through this interface of top down and bottom up. Mm -hmm. It's just how it's how we live. My theory of consciousness is sort of uh, built around the idea that it is in this space between top down and bottom up that consciousness really emerges. That if you are only a receptacle to influences from the environment as other animals are. Now, there are animals that also have top-down goals too and have at least some version of what we think of as consciousness. But if you go, you know, to single-celled animals at an extreme or, you know, animals that are really almost completely reflexively responsive to the environment, then I would say that they don't have consciousness at that level. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we don't really have examples of this, but if you're completely top-down and have no sensory input, again, you cannot emerge consciousness because you don't have an experience of the world around you, which only comes through sensory input. So that's where I, you know, find, find that concept of consciousness um, uh, emerging, at least in my own understanding of, of this interface of top down and bottom up. And that uh, perspective on consciousness may or may not be found deeper in the novel than the part that Tom and I are going to discuss today and that people who are both listening to the podcast and reading the novel have presumably read up to where there won't be any spoilers here. But that is that is a very interesting perspective and one that that subset of listeners who are actually reading um, might, you know, might find interesting to attune to as they get deeper into the book. One final thing, I know you read a fair amount of science fiction. Uh, is are there any works of science fiction, whether written or film or TV or some other form, um, that was particularly inspiring to you as a kid in your choice to go into the sciences, uh, and or is there, are there any works of science fiction that you think do a particularly good job of exploring the field that you are active scientifically active in? Well, I would say you know I'm probably not alone in this of uh, being really inspired by Isaac Asimov. Um, you know his Foundation series was you know, mind blowing to me. Uh, and you know, there's actually EEG in there. Is there uh, a yeah, foundation? Yeah. It, I got to go back it, and read it. it. The second foundation. And, um, it's, it's really interesting actually to read it again years later. Um, and you know, so much of science fiction has been, uh, been inspired by uh, Asimov's works uh, in the 50s. And so that was a, a big part of my, of my sort of inspiration in science, undoubtedly. Now, you know, um, I try to read science fiction every single day. Um, the news has sort of preoccupied me a little bit and yeah. stole me away from science fiction, which is sort of pissing me off. But um, I, I it, it also <laughs> pisses off the science fiction writers of America. I'll tell you, I, I still try to not read the news as much as read science fiction. And the reason why is because I like challenging my imagination and thinking about the future um, and then bringing 
aspects of that that um, I think are tenable immediately into into our lab and into our research practice. Superb. Well, thank you, Adam, for being so generous with your time and for inviting us to your lab. Thanks for coming by. It's been a fun time uh, discussing this with you. So that was my fabulous interview with Adam at UCSF, and Tom and I are now back together to talk about what we just heard. Yeah, and I, you know, I noticed that Adam features prominently in your acknowledgments page. How was he engaged in the creation of the book? I actually probably spent almost 100 hours interviewing people as I was researching the book to get smart about specific areas, obviously, in this case, consciousness and neurosciences, and also to get smart about just lots and lots of fields as I was really deciding what to write about. Everybody I talked to was incredibly generous with their time. But Adam and I spent many, many hours together, and he had a huge influence on the model of consciousness that I decided I wanted to represent in the book, and also gave me the confidence and that I understood what's happening in neuroscience well enough to, although I, I, what I wrote is fiction, it is at least plausible based on what we know already. So he was a, a great asset, and frankly, one of the reasons why I'm doing these podcasts is I, I was unable in the novel to go into as much depth as I'd like to into the really exciting work that Adam and some other folks that we'll be interviewing in future episodes are doing, um, much as I'd love to put a 20-page digression into the book about consciousness, that's pretty lousy storytelling. So we get to do that here on the podcast. Yes, I like this better than footnotes. Yes. You know, any, anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with footnotes. Not when that there's anything the wrong with that. Venue. Yes, exactly. Uh, but we are about to get spoilery. So mm-hmm. if you haven't read the appropriate pages, 51 through 109, and you don't want to be spoiled, you, you can move away now. But I want to start by talking about moats. They Mm -hmm. play prominently in this section. Where did you come up with moats? They are totally made up. Um, And I consider them to be more fiction than science fiction. I know that's kind of a hair-splitting definition, but... In the last episode, I said, I believe I commit science fiction three times in this book. This is fiction. This is just sort of making something up about the world that we inhabit rather than something being done with technology that we cannot yeah. do today, which is more science a, fiction. You weren't looking at a study of moats no. and then extrapolating. This yeah. is, I'm, I'm, I'm making something up in the way that somebody who's creating a work of fiction that is not science fiction will make it up. The reason I came up with this model is... I've always been intrigued by the fact that the infinite variety of life on this planet is written in base four. It's there are there are four types of base pairs in DNA. That's it. And every living thing, with some very exotic exceptions that prove the rule, every living thing is based on that very essentially digital language. I mean, it's not precisely digital. It's not base two, it's base four. Mm -hmm. And that's true of a lot of elements of the universe. There are four fundamental forces, you know, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, gravity, and and the other one, uh, electromagnetic. And up, down, strange charm, right? No, now you're getting into quarks. There's six types of quarks. So, So I've always been fascinated by these extravagant diversities that arise from very, very small numbers of combinations. And as as Ellie said in the book, also all the colors on your screen are RGB or perhaps CMYK if you're using print. So I, I, I got kind of intrigued by the notion of this, of emotions, which are arguably in some ways, you know, so long as we're the only intelligent species that we know of, among the most powerful forces 
in the universe. They're very powerful things that emotions have the power to cause us to do things that then shape the macro environment in very, very significant ways. And I like the idea of them being digital. And it also played into a broader narrative that I'm not going to go into too much depth because it would involve some spoilers about how they hook into consciousness, how that consciousness touches on Mitchell's cataplectic disorder, Falkenberg's disease, and other things. They're an elegant way to stitch together lots and lots of elements of the story. Now, the way you wrote the motes is so fitting to human experience that I personally would not be shocked if someday there is some study that comes up with something that is similar to that. I mean, but you you just pulled this all out of your own feelings, yes. for lack of a better This word, was right? an entirely made-up field of science, and by God, if it does turn out to be true, do I ever deserve a Nobel. <laughs> the Reed effect. Exactly. Uh, okay, so you mentioned Falkenberg's disease. Where, where did you come up with Falkenberg's disease, and do you know anyone who has it? Thank God, no, because it'd be a horrible disease. Yeah. This is, um, I commit science fiction three times. Here I commit horror story. Yeah. Falkenberg's disease is an invented disease. It's basically a combination of two things. It's, it's a derivative of narcolepsy combined with what some call Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. The way that people die of Falkenberg's disease is quite akin to how they die of ALS, only because I was in horror writer mode. I made it worse with this sort of burning sensations that are described as being the final step down this horrifying journey. And I've unfortunately known a number of people who have had neurological diseases over the years, some who survived them and died of other things, um, some people who died of them, and some people who are still fighting them. But there is something that is so terrifying and poignant about them. And I also thought there is something, I find there's something very poignant about cataplectic disorders. We're probably most familiar with, you know, people suddenly falling asleep. But there are other ones as well. They, they do occur with surges in emotional states. Some cataplectic disorders get caused by laughter. So it's not just narcolepsy. And sometimes people who are narcoleptic fall asleep when they laugh. And the, the notion that you could be sort of like a marionette to your emotions in a very physical way, rather than simply, you know, the perceptive way and the, and the opinion-shaping way and the action-shaping way, which is frankly plenty for the rest of us, also struck me as poignant. And the elements of synesthesia to this mm -hmm. as well, where, yeah. you know, one input is, is transmuted into something else. But again, horror writing style, you transmuted it into something awful. Yes, that's because, yes, but why not? Uh, so you've committed fiction, you've committed horror. Uh, let's talk about one of the instances of you committing science fiction, the imaging technology described in your book. It goes well beyond the capabilities of MRI and EEG. As Adam clearly stated yeah. in our interview, and I, I did actually bring that out deliberately. Now, you said you committed science fiction just three times. Times. Uh, this, this is number two. This would be the number two. Okay. This is number two. Yeah. And I first got really intrigued by MRI. There was an utterly fascinating TED Talk in 2013, in which a woman who at the time was working for Google showed how MRIs could basically intuit, in some cases with chilling precision, what the subject was looking at at that moment and at times what the subject was thinking of. And basically what, what happened was a person would be looking at a series of images 
And she put up on one screen the series of images that the person was actually seeing, and on another screen, the series of images that the system inferred the person was seeing based on brain activity coming out of a highly sensitive fMRI. And it was chilling, because this was mind-reading, literally mind-reading. And knowing that, you know, systems improve over time, at that point in 2013, I was like, oh my God, what will they be able to do in six or seven years? Now, as we both all found out from the conversation with Adam, as I found out before I started writing, there really is no Moore's Law curve for this stuff. MRI machines are going to continue to improve, but more at an arithmetic than an exponential level, and there's not going to be a radical breakthrough on that or on the EEG front. But the thing that I felt could be an out-of-the-box thing that would shatter them both is what if you come up with a way to bring the two together, which is what happened in Ellie's lab, a little bit of science fiction. So as with the MRI, you can see, you know, very slow things, but tiny things. You know, why is the MRI so slow? Well, the reason is, and I find this kind of interesting, is it's all about blood flow. So the blood is lighting up this region of the brain. It's lighting up this region of the body as it dashes there because there's activity and the activity calls for oxygen and glucose and the other fuels that the blood brings with it. But the resolution that you can get is therefore by definition limited by your heartbeat. The heart beats and more blood shows up and then more blood might be like, oh my God, I've got to get to the hippocampus right now, but it can't do its next dash toward the hippocampus until the next beating of the heart. And so that's why MRIs are so slow. They're kind of measuring the secondary The pace effect. of a heartbeat. The yeah. pace of that, that is the cadence that they move at. And then obviously EEG, because it is electrical fields, you can get, you know, very, very fast results, but you're getting occluded by, this, by, by the skull. So my little bit of science fiction was combining the strengths of both systems. It's not inconceivable that this will happen someday. And if it does, it'll be the kind of breakthrough that'll allow for sudden and unexpected discovery. So what this did from a storytelling standpoint is it gave me a place to hide my moats where Ellie could discover them. Well, and and it is perfectly reasonable to think there is something hiding in that gap, in the lag, if you will. There is stuff we simply cannot see because it is both fast and small. There is a a vast world of things going on in the brain that we cannot see. We just inferred that memories are stored in an 11th dimensional network recently. And that's something that we did with the current technology. Imagine if you could see more of Mm -hmm. what's going on and make more connections. And we'll get there. And until we can, we'll just ask Ellie. Yeah, exactly. Now, listen, at this point, we've seen Amazon reviews. We've met Mitchell and Kuba in the present and the past. Uh, We've read some Netgirl. We've been to Tony Jepson's dot-com bust party at Momo's, which by the way, side note, Part of my love of your story early on was that I have been to the Bourbon and Branch and I've been to Momo's mm-hmm. in the times in which they appear. You have. I went to Momo's at that that dot-com era boom. But did anyone ever try to order you to stop having so many of these elements? You should have seen the first draft. <laughs> but actually, I'd say that most of the people connected to the book as I was writing it, my editor, my wife, my agent and others as well, thought this crazy diversity of modes and voices make the book special and unusual. But it was still a constant balancing act between too much and hopefully just the right amount. I mean, if you look at the first draft of this book, it's now about 30% shorter. 
And in the course of rewriting, I fired a major character who was just not in this book because he got fired. And that was a doozy after a first, I mean, there was a, there was a sixth major character. He's just gone now. That's a doozy of a change to make. I ended up having all this flashback stuff going on with the past. That wasn't in there. I took on a narrator. So pretty big things happened, and I called a couple hundred pages from the book. Now, needless to say, my editor at Random House, Trisha Narwani, was critical to all this. And I describe our working relationship in some detail on my acknowledgments page. And I also had a couple dozen people read work-in-process versions of the book and um, inhaled input from all kinds of people. And I think you need to be you need to have a very special relationship with criticism and with feedback if you're going to be a successful writer because you have to be very good and unemotional about taking it. But you also have to have a lot of backbone about ignoring a lot of it. Because if you end up implementing everything you have, if you're so open to feedback, you're going to end up with a book that gets written by committee. One of the biggest things that I learned in journalism school from the editor of Journalism 350, the introductory course, was when he told me, I'm going to rip apart every story you give me. You don't have to take any of my edits, but you better have a really good reason why. And that's exactly what you're talking about, is knowing when to say, you know what, I know you're all saying that, but I have a really good reason why I can't do what you're saying. Now, another way in which people can get even more out of this story is listening to the audiobook, because another thing that I think you've done very well is an ensemble cast. And I don't say that just because I read the New York Times parts. You are one of the ensemble. But because you have much better people than me, people that I enjoy and admire uh, doing perfect parts. And we mentioned Felicia Day reading the Net Girl parts. You have someone special reading the Amazon reviews as well. Oh, yeah. So um, here we have John Hodgman. Now, John and I go back a ways. He actually read the entirety of my last novel, Year Zero, and he read it magnificently. And so um, I recommend John Hodgman's audiobook of Year Zero to anybody. When I got to these reviews, they were playing in my brain in John Hodgman's voice. And um, just sort of the dry wit, the Bostonian dimension, uh, John is from the Boston area, the particular category of humor, the use of vocabulary, everything else. Later on, I'll talk about in a later episode, how I actually wrote all these before I met Hodgman, which is an interesting statement because I've known Hodgman for almost 10 years. And I think I mentioned earlier, I just started writing this book a couple years ago. So there's a mystery we will get back Mm -hmm. to. But after I met Hodgman, I forever thought of these reviews as being in his voice. And I was lucky enough to be in the recording studio when he recorded these reviews, and it was like the culmination (laughs) of imagining something being just the way it should be, and then suddenly hearing it exactly as it was meant to be. And why don't we listen to Mr. Hodgman read a Higginsworth review or two right now? Storm 3000, Tsunami Force 5. Five stars. Axis of Evil Beware. Young Charles is armed. November 22nd, 2001. Your reviewer, Charles Henry Higginsworth III, from Boston, Massachusetts. Our twins turned four this summer, and a grown woman selected this hydrant-class spray toy for her daughter to gift to my son. I like to believe Amanda's mother knows nothing about our home decor, nor of my son's volcanic side. Otherwise, I might suspect that my first wife coaxed her into sabotaging our once lavish interior's few remaining valuables, which, while not water-soluble, were anything but water-resistant. 
The Storm 3000 Tsunami Force 5 spews its destructive payload about 20 feet, cleverly illuminating it with a photon beam. Translation, a ray of light. Allowing the proud homeowner one final glimpse of his cherished antiques in mint condition. And your little brown shirt needn't limit his ordinance to water. Young Charles's field tests showed that Gatorade, soy sauce, and Diet Dr. Pepper all erupt from this ingenious device's muzzle at full velocity. Hybrid payloads of Perrier mixed with obsession fragrance discharge more diffusely, enabling efficiency-minded vandals to saturate entire racks of dresses with a single round. Indeed, just such a volley provoked the instant and unexpected conversion of Charles's mother into a gun-control zealot. She had previously been more co-conspirator than chaperone in the proceedings, on account of her Latina joie de vivre and youthful exuberance. At 26, she's marginally closer to our son's age than to mine, and it does show in instances like this. Happily, little Amanda's own birthday was by then on the horizon, and we repaid her mother's kindness with a first-act discovery drum set, which is also available in this store. First-act discovery drum set. Five stars. Verisimilitude. December 1st, 2001. Your reviewer, Charles Henry Higginsworth III, from Boston, Massachusetts. Our four-year-old son recently received a Storm 3000 Tsunami Force 5 water howitzer as a birthday present. It was ostensibly a gift from his little friend Amanda, but her mother was clearly behind this wicked act, which soon resulted in the complete saturation of our living quarters. Happily, Amanda's own birthday was near, and when the great day arrived, we retaliated by sending young Charles to a party with this as his offering. I am happy to report that these drums are louder than bombs and more addictive than Pokemon. Three months have passed, and Amanda still drums daily, according to intelligence gathered by young Charles during playdates. When her interest briefly waned, I urged Charles to refocus her on the crash symbol during his next visit. This rekindled her passion for music-making, as did some old Keith Moon videos I later screened for the playgroup. Amanda now adroitly mimics Keith's old stunt of knocking the drum kit to pieces at the end of each set. A true case of life imitating art. Achievement unlocked. Achievement unlocked. Uh, so that was Hodgman doing a magnificent job of reading these in the ensemble audiobook, which is, I believe, I think it's 22 hours long. Yeah. Yeah. It's a now, long book. That is a goal achieved. And both Ellie in the book and Adam in your interview talked about goals being cognitive actors. Yes. Uh, now, since you quoted Ellie to Adam in your interview, I assume this is an important part of the storyline. It is. And it's a very interesting theory in neuroscience that could just be right. Now, Adam mentioned this idea of goals as cognitive actors over dinner that we had before I even started writing the book. And I found it fascinating and I ran with it. Now, I should point out, this isn't Adam's main field of research. It's more a part of a worldview that he's developed over the decades that he spent in the field. But it intrigued me and it still does. Because goals absolutely do shape what we're allowing in. We're getting this gale of input from our bodies, from the bottom up, as Adam would say. Every photon, every sound wave, every fleck of skin is constantly reporting. And it's that which I want to do in this moment, my goal, that's hitting the mute button on almost all of this and thereby shaping this into a parsable experience. 
So that goal is a cognitive actor, yet you need that bottom-up input as well. It's vital. You need that collision, that dialogue between goal and physical input. And what this could mean is a consciousness needs something like a physical body in order to arise. And Adam himself said, I'll quote him from the interview we just did, if you're completely top-down of no sensory input again, you cannot emerge consciousness because you don't have an experience of the world around you, which only comes through sensory input. Now, interestingly, in my research, I came across three or four other neuroscientists who very speculatively said something quite similar to this, all of them independently and all for very different reasons. And so I became very enamored with this notion of consciousness arising via a physical body interacting with that seat of volition and goals. And so this is just not a spoiler, it's just something to be attuned to. I ended up thinking that this would be a very interesting way for consciousness to arise. For even if something was digital and didn't have a physical body, for it to have some kinds of physical inputs that could create that top-down, bottom-up collision, which may just result in consciousness. So if I may, if goals are cognitive actors... And your goal was to get John Hodgman. He is your cognitive actor. In a sense. In a sense. He is. Yes, many people are our cognitive actors. I think that... John will be flattered to know that. If you haven't realized it, that means we're at the end of this episode. We are indeed. Next episode, episode three, we will cover pages 110 through 180, and our guest will be talking about digital privacy and government intrusion. Yeah, and it's a really fantastic interview, and I'm excited about our guest. It's Cindy Cohn, uh, who runs the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, uh, which is at the forefront of all of these issues of government intrusion and privacy in the digital age, and we talk about all this stuff. So if you want to get that... Go find it right here, wherever you found this episode. And if you want to find out more about After On, if you want to catch up, if you want to keep reading, go to after-on.com. Thank you so much for listening. So, Ars Technica listeners, here we conclude the third and final installment of my interview with Adam Ghazali. I do hope you enjoyed it. In case you're interested, the current episode of my show is an interview with Great Britain's astronomer royal, Martin Rees. He and I talk about the most eerie and violent phenomena in the known universe, specifically gamma-ray bursts in the violent department and fast radio bursts in the eerie department. We also spend a great deal of time discussing the existential risks society might face in the 21st century, which is also the topic of the article series that I'm posting to Medium, this month, which you can find at medium.com slash at Rob Reed. You can find the Martin Reese episode by visiting my site at after-on.com or just type the words after on into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes. You'll find lots of stuff about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me next week here on ours when we'll have another episode in serialized form.